Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Well, welcome to the Unemployed Philosophers Podcast. My name is Dan Mullen. Thanks for joining me. I have a great guest with me today, but before we introduce him, uh, since this is the inaugural episode, I thought I'd take a moment to share a little bit about myself and the purpose of this show. After six years teaching philosophy to undergraduates, I found myself unemployed. Although I no longer have my classroom, I still have a passion for communicating philosophy and making it accessible. This podcast is part of a new initiative to reach a wider audience than just the university. Podcasting is a great medium for philosophy, and I found many supportive people who are also passionate about the subject and are willing to volunteer their time and resources to help put together what I believe is a unique program. My hope is that my guests will be an inspiration to others to learn more about philosophy, and I also hope these shows will provide encouragement to the many students I've encountered over the years who are deeply intrigued by philosophy, but are worried about their career prospects if they pursue it. Or perhaps you've already pursued a degree in philosophy and, like me, find yourself on the job market in a tough economy 
faced with employers who don't really understand the skill set that philosophy gives you. So think of this podcast as a source of strategic knowledge for those like myself who are seeking innovative ways to use their philosophical background. Even if one doesn't make a career doing philosophy in a traditional sense, there are many other ways that one can do philosophy, and my guests will share some of those ways with us. It's been inspiring to learn about people who are using philosophy in creative ways. It also encourages me that there's no end of potential opportunities for the philosophically inclined person. If you're not sold on this idea yet, you will be once you've heard my first guest. My guest today is David Peck. David is an experienced public speaker, acclaimed sleight-of-hand magician, university lecturer, and innovative social entrepreneur. He began his professional life as an electrician more than 18 years ago, and has since achieved a master's degree in philosophy from the University of Guelph in Guelph, Ontario, Canada, in 2006. He has also gained a reputation as an innovative and engaging public speaker, addressing topics ranging from personal motivation to social justice issues. In 2008, he founded SoChange, a groundbreaking organization that works alongside members of the non-governmental community in areas such as fundraising, advocacy, and capacity building. David currently resides in Oakville, Ontario, with his wife, Elizabeth, and their two children, and David joins me today on the Unemployed Philosophers Podcast. Well, hello, David. Uh, thanks very much for joining me today. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. So you have a very impressive uh, resume, as we heard, and I mentioned that you started out as an electrician. So how does one uh, go from electrician to philosophy? Uh, tell us a bit about that story. Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess with any story like this, it's kind of probably longer than it actually needs to be, especially when you're, uh, when you're telling it for the first time. But it, it certainly makes me think back to an awful lot of uh, different situations and those little stepping stones that actually, you know, take you to a, a certain place. But I was, I was uh, probably, I, th I think the short answer is that I was really doing philosophy from quite a young age. I mean, I was asking some pretty, I don't know about serious, but pretty relevant and important questions, I suppose, uh, as a youngster of my parents, probably from about the age of, of 13 on, I started reading um, philosophy about age 16, 17. So that was actually before I got into the construction field, and that came uh, a couple of years after that. But I remember a pretty interesting story of having a copy of uh, Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil in the backseat of my car. And you know, in construction field, you kind of your car becomes your truck in a way, and there were tools and a hard hat and so on. And I was driving a couple of uh, guys to a different job site, and a guy hops in and he sees this book and has no idea uh, who this is or what it is, but picks it up and he looks over it and he goes, "Hey, Peck, you sure you're a, a construction worker?" And then kind of tosses the book back into the seat, and so that led into a pretty interesting conversation. But yeah, I think I think uh, there, you know, in some ways, I think they're deeply connected. Uh, oddly enough, I, uh, one of the first courses I took um, in my undergrad, I did it part time while I was actually serving my time as an apprentice and and working as an electrician. I worked for the same company for many years, and I did a couple of credits a year at night school. The first course I ever took was a modes of reasoning course. And Claudio Duran, one of my favorite uh, professors I've ever had, incredibly relational guy, deeply philosophical, great thinker. And he said to me when he found out I was an electrician, he told me this very interesting and ultimately affirming story about how one of his students many years ago was a plumber who turned out to be one of his brightest philosophers, his brightest thinkers, and, you know, kind of who would have thought. So here was Claudio. 
telling me a story, but at the same time saying, hey, you're not maybe as odd as you think. You're not as outside of the, the, the circle as much as you think. There are others who are doing similar things. And uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's, that's probably the short version of the story. There's other things I could talk about. But um, yeah, yeah, construction actually ultimately played a role uh, in my master's thesis and, and the writing that I did. In fact, one of the examples, one of uh, my opening examples in my master's thesis has to do with my first day on the job as an electrician. That's great, yeah. And uh, you received your master's degree at Guelph. I did, yeah. And uh, incidentally, that's where we uh, ran into each other. That's where we first met. I mean, it's funny. When you sent me the email, I was trying to think if it was a Redeemer conference or if it was actually Guelph. And, and yeah, it was absolutely Guelph. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. And so uh, you've taught philosophy since then. Um, you've taught, as you mentioned, at Redeemer. Uh, you taught, so you're currently teaching, if, if I uh, have my information correctly, at Humber yeah. in the International Project Management Program. Yeah. And uh, we'll talk a little later about how philosophy relates to, to that field. But tell us a little bit about your teaching philosophy. Uh, how do you make th that subject accessible to your students? So I've done a bit of teaching philosophy at Redeemer University as well. I did an intro to philosophy course there for a couple of years, and then I introduced a film and philosophy uh, course at Redeemer a few years back. And uh, I continue to have kind of my foot in the door there, but I haven't taught there in quite some time. They brought in some new people, and but I, I stay in touch. And so, you know, obviously bringing philosophy into a philosophy class is, is, is you would think, is an easy thing to do. But uh, as you well know yourself from your experience dealing with with young students who don't necessarily care about the topic, it, it can be challenging. It can be challenging to make it fun and interesting and relevant and, you know, a worthwhile experience so that they hopefully aren't spending all their time on Facebook or, uh, you know, playing solitaire while you're, uh, while you're working through a deep uh, philosophical issue. But with regard to international development, uh, I teach in the International Project Management Program, and I teach a course called Issues and Tools in International Development, and I also teach a one-week uh, course what in their what they call their um, their IDI, which is their International Development Institute, and so that is for for professional students. So so these are people who are coming in for one week intensive, uh, 8:30 to 4:30 for five days. They don't get a certificate or a, a diploma or a degree or you know credit, but they get you know very practical grassroots kind of stuff. So in some ways, it's easier to do the philosophical work with them because of their level of experience and their age and so on. And then in the International Project Management Program, these are postgraduate students who have probably done a degree in political science, uh, you know, sociology, philosophy, something related, history to international field of one kind or another. And they're coming into this program and they're looking for practical skills. They're looking for work. They're looking to make connections and, and build relationships and so on. And so, so when I, I actually went through the program just after my master's degree and did the full one-year postgraduate program there and, and loved it. And that's kind of where the shift in my life took from from uh, what looked like it was going to be a purely academic career to a purely academic new career to um, more of a uh, on the ground uh, making contact with reality uh, international development worker lifestyle with a little bit of academic work on the side. So I still haven't answered your question, and believe me, I I know that. So so. Then, I, uh, you know, to, to actually introduce it to the students is tough. I, I, it really is. And so what I try to do is my teaching style, I would say, is probably very different than most, not everyone, but 
my teaching style is very dialogical. It's very interactive. It's based on asking questions of the group. It's based on discussion. And so what I will do is I'll come into a class, and I've got a lesson plan. I've got a one-page lesson plan, and here's what I want to do today, and here are the two video clips I'm going to show, and here are the three pictures I want to talk about, and here's the essay where I'm going to hand out or the article from the Globe. And I try to keep the class relevant and recent and so on. And then I drive those you know, four or five points that I want to make in my class through discussion and through, um, through the Socratic method, frankly. And, 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 and the kids, kids, I'm sorry about that, the students really resonate with that. And uh, I've found that there's such a juxtaposition to the way that I've presented this issues course and so much of what else they're getting in this business school traditionally, you know, very PowerPoint heavy, very mathematical, very process oriented. They really resonate with this, you know, interactive and, and uh, style. And, and what's kind of um, also important to me is that through that, you have the ability to affirm individual students. You have an ability to affirm their ideas and the ways that they're thinking. And I've had students come to me after classes and say, you know, I just so appreciated you, you listening to me and letting me say my piece in class. And then what I will do is I will ask a question back in return and, and build from there. So I will always cover the points that I want to in a class, but I will, I will actually draw them out of the students, if that makes sense. And, and I couldn't have done that if I hadn't have been trained in philosophy, I don't think. So being a, being a philosopher has definitely made me, I think, <laughs> I hope, a better, a better teacher. Well, that's great. Uh, and so you mentioned this is kind of a, a business context in which you're working. Uh, and that uh, segues uh, nicely into the next question, uh, because you've also uh, worked as a public speaker, and as I understand, you've uh, spoken on the subject of philosophy to corporate audiences. Is that correct? It is, yeah. I mean, uh, what I've done is, uh, I've, in some cases, I've actually used uh, a certain sort of a philosophical theme or notion and tried to stick it into a context that is relevant to the people that I'm speaking with at the time. Or I'll take examples or stories out of the history of philosophy and kind of relate that to to the group or to the the, the actual uh, talk itself. That's great. Uh, could you give us a quick list of uh, some of the companies that you've addressed? Yeah, so I'd have to, um, you know what, I didn't actually go back and check, uh, and I do do actually have a list, but I mean a lot of, um, uh, so definitely uh, uh, Royal, Royal Bank, um, Mack Trucks, uh, you know, I could I could get back to you on a list, and I'm sorry, oh, right. I, meant oh, to act, I meant to actually go back and check, um, but it's it's been it's been fairly significant, and what's interesting, something that hasn't come up in our our interview here is years of which may, I don't know, years ago, and, and I still do practice, uh, but I'm a sleight of hand magician as well. And so I've had the opportunity to kind of bring three things together on stage where um, I was speaking for the, um, not uh, a college, but it was a corporate audience out in Peterborough recently, and I was talking about little things making a big difference and so on. And I have this opportunity to you know, kind of do a bit of philosophy in front of this group, hopefully in a meaningful and engaging way through storytelling and so on, bringing in a bit of my international development work, but also occasionally throwing in a little bit about magic or maybe talking about the history of it or, or, or doing an actual effect on stage. And it's, it's become a really interesting way to, to kind of reach uh, that, that, that kind of a crowd that normally wouldn't, you know, maybe be thinking about mm -hmm. things in this way. So one of the, one of the goals I've, I've really 
tried to build uh, my company on, my uh, pretty much everything I do, the way we raise our kids, my relationships, is by kind of asking questions, again, Socratic Method, to, to reveal things that maybe uh, were not in the forefront. And so, so we, we, you know, we speak to our kids in this, this way, and we, you know, uh, I, I, the way I am on stage, yes, I've got this persona, but at the same time, um, it's, it's very much built on what I've practiced over, you know, what is mm-hmm. it, holy smoke, I guess it's about 20, I guess about 25 years from the, uh, the, the first time I started to, to, to read philosophy. So sorry. So, so yeah, it's a little bit of a segue from your question, but uh, the the one of the things I'm I'm launching a new website in the near future, and I'm going to be really going after a uh, corporate and a university crowd as a public speaker uh, slash lecturer, I guess you could say. So I'll continue to teach, but what I'm hoping is is that I'm going to be able to you know broaden uh, that uh, out into uh, you know a much larger reach. Yeah, well, that's that's great, and that does lead into uh, some of my other questions. Um, public speaking, uh, I want to talk a bit about that, because um, a lot of people who have an academic background, particularly a background in philosophy, have some public speaking experience. They've given lectures or, or something to that effect, but they often don't know how to translate that uh, to a wider audience, and perhaps they'd like to. Perhaps um, they'd like to reach a wider audience with their message, Perhaps they'd like to supplement their income because, let's face it, uh, academics aren't that well paid. What advice can you offer people trying to break into the public speaking field? Mm. Well, I think I think the the it's not really my advice in a way. I think it comes out of Dale Carnegie, but it, it makes a lot of sense, and that is to take every, absolutely every opportunity that you're given um, to speak, take it. And if it means, uh, if it's for free, if it's for friends, if it's for 15 people or 1,500 people, uh, do whatever you can to make it work and to, you know, put as much time and effort and energy as you can into it. At some point, you have to make the decision, I suppose, is this, you know, worth doing? Is it worth my time and effort? But if you're breaking into it, it's, it is a tough thing to do. It's hard to get up in front of people. And so, uh, uh, so, for, you know, don't turn down invites for sure. And then I think the next thing is to uh, look for those invites and, and actually uh, seek them out. Are there opportunities? Are there ways of doing things maybe uh, where you work? Are there a, could you offer a lunch and learn session once a month with your company that you work with? Uh, maybe the school that you're at. Maybe you can offer a, a guest lecture series and you're going to host it and you're going to emcee it and it gives you a way of of getting some stage time and some face time with an audience and, and you start to become more comfortable with the sort of idiosyncratic-like nature of public speaking because you never quite know what's going to happen next. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people fear it so much. And uh, the nerves uh, can, can be really heightened. A friend of mine who's a, a philosopher and a theologian and He's been teaching, he's 68, he still teaches, and he says to me that he gets nervous every time that he still, you know, speaks in front of a class. Wow, look at your Victor, look at your CV, and what are you talking about? And, and I think there, there's this real tension there uh, between being comfortable and, and being, you know, concise and clear and being on. And, you know, he says once he gets started, he's fine. And, but there's this, this little bit of tension. So it takes years to work through that. So... Uh, I think, you know, uh, don't turn the invites down. Look for uh, invites. Try to to create your opportunities. 
maybe maybe even start you know your own sort of video blog. Another interesting way to get your thinking out there, your ideas out there, and and also writing, and and then have guests appear and so on. And then I think the third thing, and it's 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 certainly a, a, a thread throughout, is this idea of just you know you know practice makes perfect. And again, um, there's you know rehearse your talks. So you've written a talk, um, you know rehearse it. Uh, work with the PowerPoint slides. Work with your props. Know where you're going to stand on stage. Don't get you know, um, hypnotized by the podium and the microphone. Move out beyond it. Connect with your audience. And these things take time and effort, and and they're hard and uh, to to work through. And I think the other uh, little piece of advice I'd probably give is try to videotape your talks, or at least um, digitally audio tape them, so that you can go back just a little bit to crit to critique your own work. But I would really highly recommend not critiquing it too much. Don't focus on it because you'll just get <laughs> miserable. And and say things like, "Wow, did I actually say that? Boy, do I sound stupid!" Or, "Boy, did I make a, a fool of myself!" Or, "Nobody laughed at that joke." So it's really easy to get hypercritical and actually uh, uh, hobble yourself, you know, with respect to actually, you know, getting in front of people. But I think I do, do enough of that so you can self-edit and just self-awareness. Get yourself a great editor, your wife, your girlfriend, your brother, your mom, your dad, your a professor who can actually maybe come to a couple of your talks and say, hey, you know what? That was awesome. That was great. You've got to be funnier. You've got to open with a joke. You've got to close, you know, open strong, close strong, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, And then there are some really great books out there. And I, I, I think um, Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People is a good book, is a really important book for people who want to public speak. And... Uh, I think it's really important too, you know, um, just to be uh, a decent human being on stage. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I you know, my my brother just recently finished reading a book on leadership, 300 pages on leadership, and he said, you know, the message for me was, is that a good leader is someone that people can relate to, someone that you know clearly makes decisions and has all these leadership qualities, whatever they are. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, they're just nice people. They're good people. They're relational people, and I think uh, I think as public speakers, I think it's really important to try to convey that as much as we possibly can. And uh, but yeah, it's a tough field, as you know, getting up in front of a class or in front of a, a group of people. It's it's a real challenge, and that's part of why I like it. It's also part of why I, I find it uh, very difficult. Yeah, well, I know at least in my case, I tend to be a, sort of an introverted person, and I, I wouldn't want to generalize, but I suspect that a lot of philosophy types are <laughs> and that's, that's that's probably very true yeah yeah and so the, the it's even more challenging perhaps to uh, even more challenging which is why i think looking for opportunities helps um guest lecturing in other people's classes uh other teachers that you might know you know rotary club is a great place uh i i've gone to some rotary meetings and offered my services for free to speak i've uh, uh you know go in and speak to uh, classes you know, find an elementary school teacher that you know and say, hey, can I come in and talk for 20 minutes on the history of philosophy and I'm going to make it really fun and interesting for the kids and I've got a great, you know, game we're going to play. I mean, you know, flex, flex those muscles that you wouldn't normally flex. And I think if, even if you are introverted, and I, I would argue a lot of people that you see on stage are, I think in, in other settings are introverted folks, and when they get on stage, that's where you see this, character, this personality, this uh, this 
bit of theater kind of you know gets created. Mm-hmm. Um, but off stage, I think in a lot of cases uh, they are probably introverts. Uh, not not in all, of course. Um, I mean, at a party, I would probably be more uh, inclined to be sitting in the corner reading a book than hanging out with with the group. But throw me on stage, and I look like I'm uh, you know an extrovert, and I, I actually don't think I am at all. Um, but uh, but I think being uh, having been a performer for so many years and teaching now and so on, it it, it becomes a part of, I guess, a part of who who you are. Uh, and this is why you know, as a magician, Robert Houdin, uh, you know, somebody asked him what were the three most important things that you could do as a magician, and he said, well, you've got to practice, and then you need to practice, and the third thing is you need to practice. Yeah. Right? And um, point well taken, Robert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's the same thing with public speaking. You get the more you do it, the better you get at it, and and find an editor that can help encourage you, affirm you, and yet at the same time build your own sense of self-awareness, um, so that you can kind of self-critique and self-edit and so on. It's a big that's a big conversation. But I mean, if you go to to the um, you know, to any bookstore, you'll find tons of books on public speaking, you know, how to use PowerPoint, how not to use PowerPoint, how to engage on an audience, how to be funny, and, you know, all these kinds mm-hmm. of things. You know, there's another um, thing I would recommend, and I've done this in, in, um, in the past, and that is, you know, find somebody you love, you know, let's say it's a Noam Chomsky or a Cornell West or it's uh, Stephen Lewis or, you know, somebody who really is a gifted orator who, who really knows how to hold an audience's attention. I would say study them. I would say watch them on YouTube, watch them on television, watch how they use their hands, watch how they use their body language and how they connect with the audience with their eyes and how they're not condescending and how they're funny and how they're engaging and so on. And, and, and not copy that, but definitely take lessons from it and build on it and learn on it. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Noam Chomsky. I think he's masterful how he holds the attention of a room, and he really does virtually nothing. He, he just, it's, the, it's the command and the, the way he speaks and the way he uses his hands. It's just it's masterful. And um, so, so, yeah, I think listening to some of those greatest talks and speeches in history, too, could, could also be... Uh, be helpful, but uh, yeah, I hope that helps. I mean, there's oh, a lot of that's excellent advice. A lot, a lot of info about, about public speaking, but it's uh, it, it, it's really great. I find I get very stressed about a talk, and uh, uh, you know, oh, gee, did I get the topic right? Have I got you know, am I going to alienate these folks? Are they going to fall asleep? And all that sort of stress and so on before, and then afterwards, and it's just such an incredible. It's it, it, it's very satisfying, you know. Assuming, of course, the talk goes good and people didn't walk out on you, um, you know, or people didn't fall asleep. It's really satisfying uh, to know that you've planted some seeds. To you've 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 hopefully added to the dialogue. You've taken it to a new level, and that, for me, that's what it's all about. It's about the dialogue. It's about the conversation. And this is boy, we're full circle back to philosophy. You know, the Socratic mm-hmm. method is, uh, it's the way to go. It is the way to go when when people are not engaged or not willing to, 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 to actually get involved in a conversation about any topic, a well-informed question can just take you to some pretty marvelous places. Yeah, excellent. Well, you also uh, mentioned um, uh, that you're a magician, and uh, that also uh, has helped with your stage presence, I assume, your, your comfort level with an audience. But you're quite yeah. an accomplished sleight-of-hand magician, I understand you produced a television show for children on TV Ontario. 
why not just elaborate a bit on the uh, magic side of your career, and if uh, you can, draw some connections to your interest in philosophy. Yeah, the connections are all over the place uh, with magic and philosophy, and as I get older, I see more and more of those connections, and I'll get into that in a second, but I... Yeah, magic's been a huge part of my life from the first day I saw uh, a woman who was dressed up as a bunny rabbit at a church uh, basement magic show pulling all this paper, colored paper was coming out of her mouth, and I was just in awe. I couldn't believe my eyes. I was six years old, seven years old, stunned by this. I remember a few years later seeing a magician on television producing cards, and these cards, I mean... I know how it's done now. I can do it. And, and I have this memory, I have this image in my mind of, wow, these cards, they, they were appearing. This was, this was the most incredible thing I had ever seen. And when I, uh, his name was Norm Nielsen. He's still alive today. Uh, and it's a whole sort of branch of magic, but beautiful, uh, manipulative, uh, theatrical, stylistic stuff, very much sort of formed on vaudeville. And this guy just had me mesmerized. So, and I think there's something to be said there about the philosophical connection between asking good questions and, and wonder. And, you know, as we both know, pretty much every philosopher that you look at would either actually say uh, that all good philosophy begins in wonder, or they would certainly imply it in their writing. And I think you can see it in Plato and Aristotle and Descartes and Francis. I mean, you can see it. In fact, isn't it Bacon who said that all philosophy begins in wonder? I mean, it's it's there. It's a thread throughout. And wonder, to me, is really about being in the moment, which is very existential, very Heideggerian, you know, and and being um, okay, kind of, with the way things are. If, uh, Socrates said philosophy is a rehearsal for dying, and I'm not 100% sure I agree with that necessarily, but. But that is what I think what he meant, or one of the things I think that he meant was is that, you know, as we go through life, we continue to ask these questions. And I think magic, in its own way, for me anyway, has, has done that. And yes, it's about illusion, and it's about reality, and it's hyper-reality, and we could kind of go down the postmodern street, I suppose, if we're looking for metaphors and all that with magic. But for me, really, it's just, it's that, it's that sense of wonder, it's that sense of awe. I mean, today, after... So I'm 46. I've been doing magic for 36 years and uh, studying it, working on it, reading about it. And still today, when I see somebody do something well, I'm, I'm just, wow, that was amazing. And, and it takes me to that place, that moment that I, uh, I wish I, that we all could spend a little more time with. But, but we're so, um, it seems to me, uh, modern in the way we approach our lives. We're, we're just desperate for the answer. We're desperate for the conclusion. We're desperate for the, the, the narrative resolution at the end of a sitcom or a story or a film. And, and for me, magic has been always a constant reminder of that, of that tension. And, and uh, it's a, just such a beautiful metaphor for wonder. But it's so hard, you know, having performed for many, many people over the years, the, the, um, the inclination of a viewer is to immediately, once the coin has vanished, once the card has risen to the top, once the tiger has reappeared, is for people to say, wow, how did you do that? Right. Isn't that amazing? Where did you hide the tiger? Mm-hmm. Where are the mirrors? Let me check your sleeves. 
I mean, I've had people rifling through my pockets <laughs> after certain things. And, and, and there was a time, you know, as I, maybe as a philosopher, but also as a magician, where I started to get really frustrated by that. Because I wanted to say to people, can't you just resonate mm-hmm. for a moment? Can't you just appreciate and enjoy the fact that I just blew your mind? Or that you are now in a, a whole other world as a result of that simple effect or simple illusion? But it seems like uh, I'm very careful to use it. I don't like using this phrase, you know, as part of our DNA or we're wired this way. I don't like the deterministic implications. <laughs> but but I think to some degree, I think because of the way we've been socialized, we we, we, we just so desperate to know. Mm-hmm. And we need to know right now. And, and so this is, I mean, another connection. This is why I don't think we're postmoderns at all. I think I think we're very much uh, um, steeped in the Enlightenment and steeped mm-hmm. in modern thinking. Um, so magic's played a huge role in my life. I've traveled with it. I've been able to make a lot of money at it. I, I've uh, lectured on it. I've got a DVD out in the market called Digital Graffiti um, with some of my own material on it. Um, I, uh, and yeah, and spells. Uh, I was up in Ottawa just recently, and I was talking to the producer of the show, and we're talking about another possible uh, partnership together, potentially. And the show's been translated into uh, about 15 languages and sold to 20 different countries around the world. It's really, you know, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's, and that's great. It's, it's, it's pretty neat. So, so yeah, I think there's a deep connection. And, and, and when I look at some, you know, we have uh, friends staying with us currently, and they said to me, wow, you know, you've had more careers than anybody I know. But <laughs> when, when I look at the threads, you know, the famous, you know, that Kierkegaardian notion of, of living life moving forward and looking back and understanding and you start to see the thread and you go, okay, this makes sense. Magic, construction, international development worker, teacher, what I wrote on in my, I mean, it's all connected. And I don't know about you, Daniel, but for me as a philosopher, what excites me now and always has, I think, are the connections and the dialogue, seeing how, how, this conversation connects to what Socrates said, you know, in the gorgeous or in the Mino or whatever. Mm-hmm. That, that really excites me. And, and how do I now practically import that into my life in a way that's meaningful and that I'm actually going to make a difference, not just with my own life, but with my family and with the, 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 the people I work with around the world in Rwanda and Malawi and Cambodia and so on. So, yeah, I um, uh, just to sort of wrap it up, I have a deep love for magic. I don't perform for money uh, anymore. I occasionally do a show or two a year, um, but I st- there isn't a day that passes that I don't have a pack of cards or a coin uh, in my hand at some point where I'm working on a new effect or a new piece. And now for me, it's it's almost like a it's a, like a yoga for my hands now. And uh, but I love it's just it's such a rich. Uh, tradition. There is so much history there. It's it's connected to metallurgy and to pharmacology and to to natural. I just found out uh, yesterday. Um, um, Charles Dickens was a crazy nut about magic. I had no idea. And uh, it's it's uh, the first uh, English translation of a uh, not English translation. The first English book is called The Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott. And essentially, it's a guy who wrote this book to lawyers and magistrates and policemen and saying, would you please stop killing people and burning people at the stake and calling them witches? They're not. They're magicians. Let me explain why. And it's the first sort of, right around the time of Descartes, right around the time of the meditation. Magic as a spur to a rational thought, one might say. 
Yeah. Uh, well, you're also the founder of an organization called So Change that works alongside NGOs in areas such as fundraising, advocacy, and capacity building. And uh, you have international clients, uh, correct? I had a couple of different uh, corporate clients. Uh, most of our clients have been nonprofits. We've been working on a literacy project in Mongolia and health capacity building in Cambodia. We've worked on reconciliation stuff in, in Rwanda. We've worked on capacity building in Burkina Faso. So it's really uh, quite amazing. And then uh, I think I mentioned to you earlier offline that we've also got this student engagement piece that we're doing now in high school. So it's a whole campaign. Uh, around malaria, and we're taking this show around uh, parts of Toronto and Ontario and advocating on behalf of um, global citizenship and malaria and trying to raise funds in the process. So it's, uh, uh, it's a work in progress, and, I, and I, I have a huge amount of respect for anyone who, who has run their own business, who has developed. I'm not a businessman. I'm a, a, liberal, a liberal arts guy. I remember year, uh, years ago speaking to the Royal Bank at an event and stuck my hand up in the air and I said, so how many of you are liberal arts grads in the room? And there was about 200 people and I was the only one with my hand up. <laughs> so, so there's lots of stuff that I'm learning along the way. I've got a small team of people that I work with, designers and video editors and a gender specialist and we've got a proposal writer and it's, it's working really well, and there's no shortage of opportunity, but it's very hard to find new business. It's very hard to get people to change and to take risks and to use new uh, approaches and new initiatives. But, uh, yeah, it uh, gets me out of bed every day, and it's, uh, it's a huge challenge, and it's, uh, it's, like I say, it's a world full of, of opportunity. What do you feel is the relationship between your philosophical background and your passion for social justice? And do you feel that your background in philosophy has better equipped you to work in this area? Well, again, you know, as I said before about magic, and I think the common thread through all of this is just the Socratic method and asking the right questions. I mean, the, the core of any good development project uh, overseas or here at home, wherever you go, whether it's a water and sanitation project or an HIV-AIDS initiative or it's a it's, it's an agrarian um, micro-enterprise project somewhere in, you know, inner Mongolia. It, it, they all come down fundamentally to asking good questions. And I remember uh, being in Cambodia and going to see a, a project in the Lavia M district, the Kashkandel province outside of Phnom Penh, about 45 kilometers. We get out of the boat. We're walking up on a very muddied bank, and I come across a well that was installed in 1997 by a large NGO and it's not being used. It's all rusty and wow, it's interesting and weird and I took 10 or 12 pictures of it because I knew someday I would use it for my students and my talks. And then as we went through the community, I began to see more of these and uh, what it ultimately turns out uh, happened was that the Mekong River was being poisoned with arsenic from industry about a thousand miles away in China and it was infecting the water table along this particular area. And so every well that had been drilled by this organization was no longer usable. And the communities had to either drink water that had high levels of arsenic in it or drink water that was coming out of the river, which was incredibly polluted for other reasons, and then um, or collect rainwater, uh, or they were using what are called biosand water filters. And, you know, it, all of a sudden, what seemed like a simple fix became a very complicated uh, thing and a very difficult problem that had huge implications. And really, at the, at the, at the, gra at the grassroots level, it was, 
if this organization had asked a few more questions when they were doing their needs assessment, maybe, maybe they would have been able to uh, have, have mitigated that, you know, that, that, that problem or avoided that issue. But who would have known that 10 years later the water table would be polluted by arsenic? So, so all that to say, I think that a needs assessment, I think a baseline study, I think any kind of proposal that you write has to be based on asking the right questions in the first place. And so that would be my first connect for philosophy. And then, and then I think just from, um, I'd like to think that doing philosophy and, and doing theology uh, and reading both has made me, I hope, a wiser um, development worker. I hope it's made me a better public speaker. I hope it's made me a more engaged dad and a more thoughtful husband. Uh, sometimes I think it does all of the opposite of those things, but I think that for the most part it has actually really, I hope, I'd like to say at the risk of sounding, I guess, a bit arrogant, a better person, a better individual, somebody concerned about issues. And, and instead of uh, turning my head when I hear about something going on in the majority world, I say, no, you know what? I need to know more about that, and I got to find the right person to ask the right questions of, or I need to read a book, or I, you know, I'm a perpetual student, and and always will be. I I just I love being in the classroom, and I love being up at the front, but I also maybe love being the student even more, and. So, so yeah, those are a few connections um, for me, the, the ethical connections, seeing those connections between looking for some sort of, I just wrote an article that's uh, going to be coming out in a magazine in September on development, and, and it's based on you know, asking the question, how do, how do you make those tough decisions? How do you decide that this community gets funding and this community doesn't? And you know, is there a universal ethic? Are we utilitarians, really, at the end of the day? What, what is it that drives us? Is there some sort of religious text? Are we Christians? Are we Muslims? And how do we come to terms with a world that is just this melting pot of, of cross-cultural um, difference? And, and how do we say this is the right thing to do? And it's uh, in the development field, it's a very, very tough question to answer, and I don't think there are any clear-cut answers. I think that also is something philosophy has done for me. It's taught me that it's okay with not knowing the answer, that maybe tomorrow we're going to have a little bit more revealed to us, and that today this is what we know, and maybe by the end of the week or the end of the year, as long as we continue that dialogue and we continue this authentic uh, level of engagement with the issue, you know, things will change. People will change. And uh, so, yeah, um, I think there's a ton of connections, and it's, it's not hard to see them when you start to peel back some of those layers. If someone wants to book you to speak, David, or learn more about SoChange, where should they go? So the best place is to check out the website. It's in, in um, under a bit of construction right now, which is uh, SoChange.ca, S-O-C-H, a-N-G-E, so change, uh, .ca, and uh, it's going to have some uh, new video up there soon. Uh, we're going to be highlighting our blog a little bit more. We're, we're tightening up some of the language, getting rid of a lot of the text. And I've got a new website launching soon uh, called davidpecklive.com, and that's going to be highlighting more of my own personal work and highlighting myself, I hope, as a, a teacher, international development specialist, and lecturer. So... Yeah, those are probably the best uh, places to go. I am uh, putting a collection of my own uh, writing together, and it's going to be coming out in the fall and will be available on online, called, and it's called The Big Idea. 
and I'm pretty excited about that as well. So, um, yeah, lots going on. I checked out the davidpecklive.com site, and there's some very slickly produced video there, a very professional setup, so congratulations on that. Thank you. It's, we took a lot of time with that, the, the company that did that for me, and we're going to have a few other uh, videos on there. There's also, I've got a series of videos called the So Change It series. There's five of them on the, um, we have a, a media tube channel, a YouTube channel called So Change Media, and if you were to search that, I think So Change Media YouTube, you would see we have about 10 or 12 videos. We've produced about eight of those. And there are just some issues. Uh, there are a few videos that are like 60, 90 seconds long about um, education. One is about infrastructure. One's about little things. And they're, they're re- I think, kind of interesting pieces. And I think you'll see uh, little bits of my philosophy coming out in each one of them. Um, so, yeah, yeah. And I'd love for people to find out more about the Mosquito Suck Tour. And that's uh, a fun website name that you probably won't forget. It's don'tbiteme.ca. And it's, um, like I said, it's a comedy show about malaria that we'd love to bring to your school. And uh, it's about uh, public engagement, student engagement. It's about global citizenship. It's about malaria and raising funds and buying bed nets for um, families that need them. It's, it's connected to Spread the Nick campaign and Rick Mercer and Belinda Stronach. And it's a really fun initiative that I'd love people to find out more about. I'll provide links to all of those sites uh, with the podcast. Excellent. Well, David, thanks very much for joining me today and being so generous with your time, and um, all the best to you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's always fun to talk about things that you love. Take care, David. Well, I sincerely hope you enjoyed my chat with David. He's a fascinating guy. I encourage you to check out his uh, website, davidpecklive.com, and also sochange.ca and don'tbiteme.ca for more information on what David is up to. Uh, next time I'm going to have a very special guest. I uh, don't have it locked in, so I can't reveal too many details, but I'll give you a hint. He's uh, one of the hosts of uh, probably the most uh, popular philosophy podcast on the web, and we'll be talking to him about the success of the show and uh, podcasting and philosophy in general, so I encourage you to join me. Until then, this is Dan Mullen, the Unemployed Philosopher, reminding you... That just because you're unemployed doesn't mean that you have to be out of work. Find something you're passionate about and do it, and good things will happen. Take care until then.